Welcome to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and today we are going to be talking about the huge point of contention that is where Daniel Boone's remains are. They might be in Kentucky, they might be in Missouri, we'll never know. So it's really quite fascinating, and I always knew that this was an issue, but I didn't know the details, and I'm excited about this. So I'm going to give kind of an overview of his life and his journey because, you know, wow. And then I'll, I'll get into why this is such an issue and how it came to be. So Daniel Boone was born on November 2nd, 1734 in Berks County, Pennsylvania, which is now Montgomery County. Also, I'm going to call him Daniel throughout this whole thing because I feel like if he was alive, he'd be like, hey, Jess, call me Daniel, you know? So, oh, and also my washing machine is filling up in the background. So if you can hear it, I'm really sorry. Um, so he was born in Pennsylvania. His parents had 11 children because 1700s. But they had to flee Pennsylvania because they were Quakers and Daniel's father, Squire, had permitted his one of his sons, Israel, to marry a woman who was not a Quaker, which was a big no-no. So they ended up going to North Carolina in 1752. And he started to form relationships with Native Americans who taught him how to hunt and how to trap and just be a great outdoorsman. He got his first gun when he was 12. Um, and he really didn't have any formal schooling, but he did learn how to read and write. He met Rebecca Boone at a family wedding, and they were married in 1756. And they went on to have 10 children because 1700s. So Daniel never really could stay in one place for long. He left home to fight in the French and Indian Wars. And after that, he started taking long hunting trips where he could explore new land and have all sorts of adventures. And he'd often be gone for more than a year at a time. He actually ventured as far south as Pensacola, Florida, but his wife was like, no, we can't settle there. We're not Florida people, we're Midwest people. So he started hanging out in Kentucky in 1767. Um, he'd take hunting trips with his brother, Squire, a friend of theirs, John Finley, had urged them to come see how gorgeous it was there and what great hunting opportunities were there. So Daniel actually got financial backing from North Carolina Judge Richard Henderson for an official expedition to Kentucky in May of 1769. So he and five others journeyed from the Cumberland Gap to Pilot Knob in Powell County, at some point during this trip, they split into two groups and they were all captured by Shawnee Indians. And they killed everyone in the party except for Daniel, who somehow managed to escape. So like not off to a great start in Kentucky, but I guess he wasn't really phased because he went ahead and moved his family there in 1773. He moved with a group of like several other families, but they were attacked by Indians almost immediately and the family members who weren't killed in the attacks pretty much all hightailed it back to North Carolina, except for Daniel's family. So at this point, he's been attacked twice, but he's like, yeah, we should just, we should keep going. So the year after that, Daniel is sent to the Falls of the Ohio area to check it out for potential settlement. And in 1775, the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals secured 20 million acres of land between the Ohio, Kentucky, and Cumberland Rivers for the Transylvania Land Company in hopes of starting a 14th colony. 
Because of his reputation for his negotiating skills with Native Americans, Daniel was one of the explorers sent to establish a relationship with the tribes in the area. So he quickly established Kentucky's second settlement, Fort Boonesboro, by April 1775 on the banks of the Kentucky River, and he had his family relocated to that area. In July 1776, Boone's daughter Jemima and two other women were captured by a Shawnee war party, but Daniel and a few other men were able to rescue them a few days later. And if this isn't enough conflict with Indian tribes for you, in early February 1778, Boone, oh, I called him Boone that time, Daniel and a group of men were ambushed and forced into captivity. So they were given Indian names and they were with them for five months. So they sort of became like part of the tribe. Um, and actually Daniel became like the chief's adopted son. Uh, he even started dressing like them. And that's how he came to find out that the Shawnee tribe was planning an attack at Fort Boonesboro. Finally, one day in June of that year, they let Daniel go hunting on his own and he managed to escape and go back to Fort Boonesboro. But when he got there, people were not psyched. They were a little mad that he had taken such a large group of men, leaving the fort vulnerable to attack. And there were rumors that he had offered to surrender it, which was not true. So he's like hoping that things will cool down, but really they're just heating up. So down the north side of the Kentucky River on September 7, 1778, came about 400 Shawnee Indians accompanied by British-backed French-Canadian Lieutenant Antoine de Quindre and a Detroit militia, plus a group of Wyandots, Cherokees, Miamis, Delawares, and Mingos. So it's about to go down. They're like, hey Daniel, but you're trespassing here. This is Shawnee territory. You can't just dump your stuff here and say that it's yours. And he's like, oh yeah, well see the Sycamore Shoals Treaty because that says otherwise. So then they start negotiating and Chief Blackfish says, okay, you can have this area, but we'll use the Ohio River as a boundary and neither of us will cross that boundary for malicious purposes. So they think everything is cool and they're coming to an agreement and both parties start to sign a document and then the Indians go ahead and seize Daniel and some of his men. Uh, but they manage to escape again and they run back to the fort and at this point everybody's got to be just exhausted. The Shawnees spend a week trying to win this land back but they ultimately fail. The settlers suffer two casualties with four others wounded. After they successfully held off the attacks, Boone was promoted to the rank of major for his bravery and contributions. Daniel participated in the Battle of Blue Licks, which was the final battle of the Revolutionary War in 1782. By this time, his title was Lieutenant Colonel of one of two Kentucky militia groups. Unfortunately, during that last battle, he witnessed the death of his son, Israel. And he felt tremendous guilt from this since it was his own decision to defend that site that was being ambushed. Boone went on to lose thousands of acres after litigation over the rightful title of settler land when Kentucky became the 15th state in 1792. 
It's said that he lost all this land because he, quote, failed to comply with the preemption requirements, possibly the result of failing to carefully read and understand the terms. So, like, he needed to use a realtor. Not only did he lose a bunch of land, there were also several lawsuits filed against him for survey issues with other land he'd settled. So it sounds like he was a really great explorer and leader, but maybe not a great businessman or numbers guy. Um, He also owned as many as seven slaves at a time, which, I mean, I'm not trying to drag the guy, but he's seen in our culture as like a pure folk hero, and I'm just here to point out that he had his flaws. He also refused to testify in one of the lawsuits filed against him, so there was a warrant out for his arrest. By the mid-1790s, Daniel is in debt, and Kentucky is getting crowded, and he's like, all right, we gotta, we gotta make a move here. So the family moved to Spanish-owned Missouri, and it sounded like Missouri really wanted him there because they set him up as magistrate of St. Charles County and gave him 8,500 acres. So he's like, yeah, I think this could be good. But then he went and lost that land too because he failed to cultivate it, which was part of the deal. So in 1814, senators, for whatever reason, petitioned Congress to give Boone one-tenth of his original holdings, and they're like, okay, fine. Which at this point is kind of surprising, because by now, there's like a pattern that this dude is not great at managing large amounts of land. So later in his life, he spent his years checking out unexplored areas in Missouri, like north and west of St. Louis, with his sons and grandsons. His wife, Rebecca, died on March 18, 1813, and Daniel had one last big hunting trip in 1816 before becoming ill with a fever and beginning to lose his sight and his hearing. So Daniel loved sweet potatoes, and one night after finishing a big bowl of sweet potatoes, he looked at his daughter and he was like, I think I might be having a heart attack. But he was like, I'm not gonna, we're not going to do anything about it. So he died early the next morning on September 26, 1820. In response to his death, members of the Constitutional Convention meeting in St. Louis wore badges of mourning for one month. Boone's funeral was kind of small. There were no military nor Masonic honors, even though he was a member of both organizations. Nathan, one of his sons, said that his father's remains were buried one mile from the Missouri River next to Rebecca's. This is where things start to get weird because others who attended the funeral contest this fact. See, the plot next to Rebecca Boone's was already occupied. So they buried him at the foot of her grave instead of next to her. Over time, the markers on the graves just started to be worn out and they were hard to read. And the Boone children went on to bury several of their slaves in that graveyard as well. And in 1840, it was proposed that they build a statue in honor of Boone's legacy um, in Kentucky. And things really took a turn when the Kentucky State Legislature voted to relocate Boone's remains to Frankfurt. And they really did this because they were hoping for a tourism boost. So finally, the, the family gave consent to move the remains. So they went to Bryan Farm to dig him up, but the current owner, Harvey Griswold, which is a great name, Harvey Griswold, he said, no way. He was like, I paid an arm and a leg for this property because Daniel Boone is buried here. I'm not just going to give it to you. 
And so they assured him that he would be compensated, and finally he gave in. And of course, a crowd gathered to watch the exhumation. As the remains were dug up, the coffins, quote, deteriorated under the spade of the shovel. Bones crumbled when the men loaded the remains, and several locals picked up bits of bone and teeth to keep as relics. Residents of Frankfurt gathered on September 13, 1845, for a parade that was led by a hearse and four white horses, and they went from the Capitol building in Frankfurt up to the Frankfurt Cemetery. Senator John J. Crittenden gave the eulogy, and they had promised as part of this deal that they were going to build a huge monument for Daniel, but they didn't build it until 1860, an entire 15 years later, when finally $2,000 was granted for its creation. And then Union soldiers defaced it during the Civil War, so it had to be rebuilt just a few years later. Anyway, in 1888, the St. Louis Globe Democrat published an article which said that Boone's grave was, quote, desecrated to gratify a spasm of Kentucky pride for which Missouri should never forgive. So this is just like, people are mad. Um, rumor has it that Boone's heirs were actually so against the relocating of the remains that they gave the people who came to dig the grave the wrong location. And that it was actually like Rebecca and some other random person's bones that they took to Frankfurt. See, when they intended to bury Daniel next to Rebecca, they'd gone ahead and put the marker on the grave next to hers when, remember, he was actually buried at her feet. So it is very possible that to this day, his remains lay there in Missouri undisturbed, which I'm not sure it's any better that they let their mom's remains be dug up, but whatever. The night before Boone was reburied in Frankfurt, Reverend Philip Slater Fall, which is another great name, made a plaster cast of Boone's skull. Dr. David Wolf, a Kentucky State forensic anthropologist, observed that the cast resembled an African-American skull with a, quote, round forehead that lacked the predominant slope of a typical Caucasian male skull. He noted that the, quote, indentation of the frontal bone, the post-orbital construction, tended to mirror an African-American more than a Caucasian male. So he also noticed that the body of the remains was really rather large when Boone was said to have only been about five foot eight, which is kind of a letdown because in my mind he was like six five. So there's reason to believe that it, it is not him. And the forensic anthropologist's observations flipped everybody out. Like even the New York Times was reporting on it. And even up into 1987, this has continued to be an issue. When Missouri officials decided that they wanted Rebecca's body back, um, to come back and be next to what they insisted was still Daniel's remains that they had there in Missouri. They petitioned John Ashcroft, governor of Missouri at the time, to issue a proclamation declaring that Boone's body never left the state. Now this would solidify the Bryan Farm and the state of Missouri as a Boone tourist site. So this is an ongoing thing and we'll probably never know where the heck his remains really are. But the nice thing is that both locations are supposed to be really lovely, overlooking like river vistas. 
So hopefully he's at peace wherever he is. And that is the story of the two grave sites of Daniel Boone. Um, for this episode, I used the book Myths and Mysteries of Kentucky by Mimi O'Malley and Susan Sawyer. It's got all sorts of great stories in there. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. I just wanted to follow up by saying that if you're curious about seeing the grave in Frankfurt, you can go to Frankfurt Cemetery, the entrance on Glens Creek Road, and it says follow the yellow line in the road and the signs to the marker. So it's pretty easy to get to and it looks really pretty in the photos. So it might be interesting to see even if he's, you know, not all there. We don't know. But if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and review and share with your friends. And if you have a topic for the show, shoot me an email at kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Also, follow me on Instagram and I'll follow you back at kyhistoryhaunts and on Facebook, Kentucky History and Haunts. Thank you all so much for listening and I look forward to sharing something with you next time.